Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands we record this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, as well as the Wanarua and the Gamilaroi people. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. A warning that in today's episode, we hear about gun violence and threats women have received after fighting against gun lobbyists, which are violent and sexual in nature. So please take care listening to this one. For the past week or so, we've again been having the discussion about Americans and their relationship with guns. America's self-inflicted agony continues with yet another mass shooting. At least 18 children and one adult were killed in the shooting. The 18-year-old gunman went from classroom to classroom. I will never have my baby again. Another shooting on another day in the USA. What about here in Australia? Are we still living in the world after the Port Arthur massacre, where guns were removed from the population, leaving us safer from those who would use them to harm us? Today, we find out what the firearm situation is here in Australia and whether we're as gun-free as we think. Columbine, Port Arthur, Christchurch, Buffalo, Uvalde, Sandy Hook, Las Vegas, Parkland... We all know what all these places have in common. And we all know the reason why there are only two places mentioned outside of the US, but that the list inside the US continues to grow while the others don't. We can't pass so much as universal background checks for people Mm. with history of mental illness Mm. or violent behaviour, even though 91% of Americans approve that, want that. How did you New Zealanders get that done? Because I know it was, it was general consensus. Well, I can only speak to our experience in New Zealand, but, you know, when I watch from afar and see events such as those today, I think of them not as a politician, I see them just as a mother, and I'm so sorry for what has happened here. And then I think about what, what happened to us, and all I can reflect is we are, we are a very pragmatic people. When we saw something like that happen, Everyone said never again. And so then it was incumbent on us as politicians to respond to that. Now we have legitimate needs for guns in our country for things like pest control and to protect our biodiversity, but you don't need a military style semi-automatic weapon to do that. That's Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, speaking to talk show host Stephen Colbert about what they did after an Australian man shot and killed 51 people in Christchurch, New Zealand. When that same horror happened to the people of Port Arthur here in Australia in 1996, where 35 innocent people died and dozens more were wounded, our government also took action to remove guns from the community. At the time, John Howard had only been Prime Minister for six weeks but he quickly moved to recruit other party leaders and those across the states and territories to agree to sweeping nationwide changes to gun laws drafted just 12 days after the shooting 
that restricted legal ownership of guns. On top of the National Firearms Agreement, the Australian government also introduced a mandatory gun buyback scheme, paying gun owners a fair price to hand in their weapons and an amnesty on those who handed in illegal guns, although they wouldn't receive any money for them. While the majority of Australians praised the move, there was a strong resistance from pro-gun groups. Hundreds of thousands of them attended rallies and marches. At one in Salem, Victoria, the PM wore a bulletproof vest to speak to the crowd after a threat was made on his life. Despite the protests, around 650,000 legally owned firearms were peacefully handed over to be destroyed. And while that sounds like a lot, it was estimated at the time that that accounted for just 20% of all privately owned guns in Australia. And just last year, researchers at the University of Sydney found that Australian civilians now own more than 3.5 million registered firearms, an average of four for every licensed gun owner. They also found that while those numbers are back to above how many were in the community before the 1996 buyback scheme, fewer individuals owned guns than they did back then, which means that the people who already owned guns have bought more of them, rather than there being more gun owners in general. The benefits of the changes back in 1996 were widely praised. Researchers finding that the firearm suicide rate dropped by 57% in the seven years after the NFA bill was passed. The firearm homicide rate also declined by 42% in that same time frame. So what did it take to get those gun laws changed? And what was it like for someone actively working to make it happen in the face of opposition from people who owned a weapon that could kill? Rebecca Peters is a gun control advocate who ran the post-Port Arthur gun control campaign in Australia and served as director of the International Action Network on Small Arms from 2002 to 2010. Rebecca, can you outline the three main areas that you identified needed to be changed in Australia's gun laws back in 1996? Before the Port Arthur massacre, it was already pretty clear to people who paid attention what the glaring gaps in our gun laws were. There weren't the same degree of glaring all over the country. Some states and territories in Australia did have gun laws that were pretty strong and others really had very weak laws. So the points that we as the National Coalition for Gun Control were constantly trying to make to everyone and getting lots of organisations to sign on to was that the laws needed to be uniform across the country and that they should be based on a ban on semi-automatic assault weapons, registration of all guns, and proof of reason for having a gun. And those things basically did exist in somewhere in at least one jurisdiction around the country. But the difficulty with not having uniformity was that, for example, semi-automatics were quite strictly regulated in Victoria at the time, but they were freely available in New South Wales and Queensland and Tasmania. Can you talk to me about that time when all of this was kind of happening, when you made those suggestions, when there was a lot of conversation happening and committees were being formed and politicians were having discussions? What was the backlash like for you being in the midst of all of that and pushing for these restrictions on firearms here in Australia? I imagine it could have gotten pretty nasty. I used to get hate mail and and I remember one, it was like a little handwritten note I got. It wasn't signed or anything and it said, God put guns on the earth so the good people could keep the bad people in line. And I thought, the person who wrote this note thinks I'm a bad person. 
and that the person who wrote these notes thinks they are a good person and that they obviously are thinking that they need to keep me in line. People would leave voicemails just, you know, swearing at me, threatening me. Also, often there's a very uh, real misogynist kind of angle on often on this gun extremism. We often had like threats of rape at gunpoint or threats of rape with a gun. It was a scary time. But we knew based on the research that most Australians supported stronger gun laws and based on the expert advice, we knew that this was the right thing to do. Were there any unintentional fallout from these new laws. Something I understand happened that people weren't counting on, and that was a massive uptake of memberships at gun clubs in the wake of this. Were there any unintentional kind of side effects from it? It wasn't completely unforeseen. Part of the new gun laws is that in order to get a license to have a gun, you have to undergo firearm safety training. That training could have been provided by the police or it could have been provided by the gun clubs. And I felt at the time that if we made the gun clubs part of the solution, rather than having them just standing on the sidelines complaining about the laws, it also makes them responsible so that they feel like they need to be looking out for any particular person who who is undergoing training, but who obviously shows traits that would be undesirable in a person owning guns. But what it means is that everybody who wants to own a gun joins these clubs and the fees that they pay for their testing has grown into a huge war chest for the gun lobby. That has meant that the gun lobby has had a lot of money available to campaign to weaken the gun laws over time since then. So it has definitely been a problem that the groups campaigning to weaken the gun laws certainly have massively more resources than the groups that are trying to keep the gun laws strong over the decades since Port Arthur. So that has been a downside. In the 18 years before the Port Arthur massacre, there were 13 mass shootings, defined as where five or more people have died in the one incident. But Port Arthur wasn't our last. In 2018, police found the bodies of seven people who'd suffered gunshot wounds at a rural property near Margaret River in WA. It was deemed a domestic violence situation in which the perpetrator had also died. But compare that to what is happening in the US and we're not even close to being in their league. Before a man killed four people at a hospital in Tulsa last week, just days after a shooter had entered a school in Uvalde in Texas, killing 19 children and two teachers, there'd already been more than 230 mass shootings in the US in 2022 alone. They are currently averaging more than one per day, and not a single week has passed in 2022 without at least four mass shootings being recorded, and those numbers are rising. So can America learn from both our success and our mistakes in implementing stronger gun control laws? Dr Emma Shortis is a lecturer in RMIT University's Social and Global Studies Centre. As a historian, she focuses on US and global environmental politics. Emma, how are we here in Australia so different from the US, a country who were also colonised by the British and who've struggled with similar racial and political issues, How is it we don't have the same mass love of guns? The temptation to compare Australia and the US is really understandable, you know, because Australia, we have our own experience and then pretty dramatic and successful gun reform. So it's really hard to understand why the Americans kind of just don't do the same thing. And the answer to that kind of lies in 
really the uniqueness of American history, the American Revolution, that then, of course, led to the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which is where the Second Amendment sits, this kind of right to it, to a well-armed militia. And so there's that complicated history. It's also deeply tied to white supremacy in the United States now, where gun ownership is deeply connected to this kind of questions of power and racial power. And so the part of the reason that you see the same people advocating in conservative media for gun control, those same people are also often engaging in and spreading white supremacy and white supremacist conspiracy theories. And so those two things are really tied together. And you can see that in the mass shooting that occurred in Buffalo just a week before this most recent one. And there's also something called American exceptionalism, A lot of Americans believe, and again, this is deeply tied to history, that they do live in the best country in the world and a country that is kind of ordained by God in its mission. And so changing those deeply held assumptions about individual rights is really much more difficult, I think, in a place like America than it is in a place like Australia or New Zealand or or even Scotland, which are all places that have engaged in in gun reform. Well, can you talk us through how they have tried to navigate and control gun ownership in the past? Because obviously this isn't anything new for the United States, mass shootings. They have to have tried to reform this at some stage. Have there been any level of success any time they've tried? Yeah, there there actually has been. And and I think it's really important to remember that as much as there's, you know, a deep history to this, actually these kind of massacres and the kind of irrationality around gun ownership in America is actually relatively recent. Like until kind of the 1970s, actually interpretations of the Second Amendment and gun rights kind of tended towards control rather than to this kind of open slather that we see now. In the 1930s, there was gun control. And then even in the 1990s, under Bill Clinton's administration, there was a gun control act that specifically curtailed the use of semi-automatic weapons. So there has been really successful efforts at gun control. And a lot of that, again, was tied up in race. So in the 1970s, a lot of people, including conservatives like Ronald Reagan and even the NRA, were actually pretty happy with gun control. And that is precisely because gun control then was really focused on limiting the ability of African-Americans in particular to own guns. And this is in the context of, you know, the the civil rights movement. And so it wasn't until sort of the 1970s and 1980s that we see this really quite dramatic shift around gun ownership, which suggests, of course, that, you know, it's possible for things to change in the future. Like this situation that the United States in is not inevitable. It's incredibly complicated and getting actual genuine reform will be really difficult, but it is possible that it could happen. The anger and grief that pours out of a community after a mass shooting in the US has become all too familiar. After the funeral rituals have been performed and those impacted try to scream loud enough to be heard over the roar of the pro-gun lobby, after the thoughts and prayers have all been sent, we are always still left with the same question. What will it take to change things for the innocent victims of this type of violence? I, I wish I knew. It is extraordinary, kind of in the truest sense of the word, that this happens to white kids. Like in, in any other country in the world, if if white kids in particular die, something happens. And that tells you how deeply this issue, I think, is tied to American exceptionalism. And so I think any change in 
gun culture and the politics of guns in the United States is deeply tied to the kind of bigger picture of American politics and, and that broken system that I was talking about. So actually getting the change that the vast majority of Americans want is going to have to be tied, I think, to pretty dramatic reform of the American political system. You know, a system that is built around white supremacy and voter suppression, a Supreme Court that's really increasingly anti-democratic and unrepresentative. So all of these things, you know, are deeply tied to gun control. So any kind of change, any kind of genuinely democratic change is going to have to be tied to much bigger reforms of the American political system. That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Jacob Round. This week on Help I Have a Teenager, Ginny and Joe tackle a topic that's worrying a lot of parents, vaping. A listener reached out after finding out her 14-year-old was vaping at school and wants to know what the health consequences are and how she can talk to him about the dangerous behaviour. The consequences are going to be dished out by the school. They're going to have their policy on what to do when kids are caught vaping, but what you're concerned about and what you want to talk to your son about is his health and well-being. Also asking him why is he vaping? What is going on? Is he vaping to try and fit in? Is he trying to get a certain buzz from it? You know, what's happening with his friends? And is he worried about if he doesn't fit in? And then discuss some options. Find help I have a teenager wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was made by Mamma Mia, the only women's media company in Australia. If you love the show, the best thing you can do is become a Mamma Mia subscriber. Mamma Mia subscribers get access to every podcast, exclusive videos, and all the great articles on Mamma Mia. It only costs $5.75 a month, which is less than a large coffee, or a small coffee if you get oat milk. If you believe in women's media, if you believe in a purpose-driven media company like Mamma Mia, whose core purpose is to make the world a better place for women and girls, please see the link in our show notes. 